and welcome to Counter Narratives, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is a part of a larger project to highlight the work of the Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I'm your host, Rachel E. Winston, and this episode of the pod is titled, We Were Never Silent, Language as Counter-Narrative. We'll be talking about remarkable items in the collections that we steward and how they embody voices of those less heard or listened to in the U.S. In part one of this two-part episode, we'll be talking with Milton Machuca Galvez, Delisa Minor-Harris, and myself, Rachel E. Winston. So, Milton. Tell us a little about yourself and what material you selected to talk about for this episode. My name is Milton Machuca Galvez. I am the new Spanish, Portuguese, Latin American, and Caribbean Studies Librarian at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Finding counter-narratives fitting the topic uh, we were never silent has been a little bit tricky in an unfamiliar place and has required some detective, did I say, librarian work. And uh, it is work in progress. I see it like that. There is more than meet the eyes in Kansas when it comes to Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, or Mexican presence. So what I would like to do today about the counter-narrative is to present a historic overview of the Latinx presence in the state and focus on a project that was made by El Centro, the, one of the largest association, Latino associations in the state. Kansas is a state that we never, we rarely associate with a Latino presence. Uh, it's more uh, overwhelmingly white. And I selected these materials precisely because they show that there has been a Latino presence for a long time in the area. To gain some perspective, let me preface by saying that centuries before the land we know as Kansas became part of the United States, the region was inhabited by different indigenous groups. Spanish conquistadores started to invade the lands in the mid-16th century, searching for the mythical seven cities of Cibola and Gran Quivira, where gold was supposed to exist in large quantities. Later, French explorers also made some forays in the area, and for the next two centuries, we have changes of ownership between Spanish and France and French, and vice versa. In the early 1800s, the Santa Fe Trail between Kansas and Santa Fe is established. Nonetheless, United States textbooks, uh, history textbooks, tend to ignore this past. In fact, Euro-American settlement shapes the narrative of the area from the 1830s and on. The pace of white settlement accelerates in the 1850s and the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty consolidates most of Kansas as part of the United States. Kansas, as I stated earlier, is not the state we associate with Mexican or Latin expressions. However, in the second half of the 19th century, in the heyday of uh, cattle drives from Texas to Kansas, the enterprise depended on Latino vaqueros and survived in song known as the Corrido of the Kansas. On my way to Lawrence, where I drove from Albuquerque to, to Lawrence, I stayed overnight in Liberal, the county seat of Seward County, a county in Kansas. It's a little city that borders with Oklahoma. I counted 12 
Mexican Latino restaurants, and most of the staff at the hotel were Latino. When I asked, I was told that most of them work in the meatpacking industry, agriculture, and hospitality. I, I was surprised by the amount of people who considered themselves Latinos. To me, this was an area that was going to be non-Latino. So that was uh, surprising, if not shocking. At the same time, it reminded me of uh, the work by two sociologists, Charles Hirschman and Douglas Massey, who since the 90s have been talking about new faces in new places, the changing geography of American immigration. They discussed the idea that new immigrants are now aiming for non-traditional points of destination, much of the migration determined by new political and economy realities. At KU, I discovered that the Kenneth Spencer Research Library Special Collection has materials about Mexican-American, Mexican, and Latino communities in Kansas. And I'm using those terms interchangeable because there's not a clear cut when one ends and the other begins. Where do I find the counter-narratives? The closest I can find it is in a project in the 2003 Migration Stories Project, a migration uh, written in MY, like Migration Projects. El Centro, the largest service organization, which was founded in 1975, uh, is the one that conducted this, this project. In 2004, El Centro donated all these sound and written materials connected with the project to the Spencer uh, Special Collections. In the project, there's a total of 31 Hispanic and Latino interviews conducted between January and October 2003. The sample is composed of mostly Mexicans, most of them married, about half of them undocumented, and the ages range from 7 to 69 years old. Most of them have higher education degrees, some of them bachelors, a few of them masters, although their income doesn't match their education. The interview questions focus on five broad areas, which include basic demographic information, the immigration experience, U.S. expectations versus realities, national identity, and discrimination. Most of the interviews were conducted in Spanish. And all the interviews are have been transcribed and are ready to be used. I haven't been able to find if someone produced some piece of scholarship with this. So if it hasn't, there's a you know an opportunity here to make those voices visible. What I haven't figured out is uh, yeah, okay, the, the interviews were conducted, but what happened? I think the Latinx community would benefit by looking back at the early 21st century and look at what the, their experience was. As a sidebar, before I finish, during the right, uh, civil rights era, Mexican-Americans and Latinos were an important influence. For example, the formation of the Association of Mexican-American Students, later the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aztlán, or Mecha, and later uh, the American Leadership Organization, Hispanic American Leadership Organization, HALO, where, where they were formed at the University of Kansas. Surprisingly, I haven't found a significant number of materials. Maybe I'm not looking at the right place and I need to extend my search. So thank you for this chance to talk to you. What a powerful collection you have, Milton. Thank you for sharing. And from Kansas, we'll now shift our focus to the island of Haiti. Delisa, I'm so excited you're here. Please tell us about yourself and what material you selected to talk about today. Thank you, Rachel. My name is Delisa Minor-Harris. 
and I'm at Fisk University, John Hope, and Aurelia E. Franklin Library in Nashville, Tennessee. I currently serve as the Director of Library Services and have in the past served as Special Collections Librarian here at Fisk. The collection I've chosen to discuss today is a collection of rare and distinctive Haitian books and pamphlets given to Fisk University's first African-American president, Charles S. Johnson, by the president of Haiti, President Paul E. McGlure. The collection consists of 55 titles, ranging from 1804 to 1950, with traditional Haitian history and culture and memory. Each publication is written in either French or Haitian Creole and features art etchings on each cover. While the collection was selected for this particular discussion today, our collections at Fisk feature a plethora of Haitian materials, including art, photographs, and documents. The selection of this particular collection explores the impactful and historical relationship between Fisk University and HBCU and Haiti, a small Caribbean island, and how both an institution and a country sought to reach higher heights of development and success through education, scholarship, art, and music. While building a bridge between Fisk and Haiti from 1930 to 1957, Charles S. Johnson, his first African-American president and prominent sociologist, documented the relationship between Fisk University and Caribbean countries like Haiti. Relevant correspondence, art, and photographs are part of the 10 dedicated manuscript collections of Charles S. Johnson. And those collections include items such as 65 photographs of Haiti in the early 1940s, correspondence between Johnson and several Haitian government officials, a collection that I'll be discussing of Haitian rare books given to Fisk by Haiti's president, Paul McGlure, and art pieces like the Haitian market scene by William Edward Scott. This particular collection of rare and distinctive titles represents agency and reclaiming of Haitian history and culture by the Haitian people. Most of the books in the collection are printed in Haitian Creole, including a significantly rare Haitian pamphlet, Les Documents. Each volume included in the collection is bound in leather material with scenes of Haiti and Haitian history etched into the leather by an Haitian artist. The scenes of Haiti depicted through the artist's hands tell a deeper story of memory and an affirming of the beauty of a remarkable country with a remarkable history. Authors and creators featured in this collection include non-traditional Haitian authors as well as Haitian authors and creators. The range of creators selected for this particular collection provides a counter-narrative to traditional studying and scholarship centered around Haiti and its history. The inclusion of rare pamphlets published by Haitian activists and scholars is remarkable in that it counters the narrative of respectability, European expectations of Haiti, and interpretations of its history and culture. This collection and in its entirety provide a landscape of Haitian history and memory and culture for all people. Thank you, Delisa, that's fascinating. And now I will hand the mic over to you as we continue on with this episode. Thank you, Rachel. Tell us about yourself 
and what material you selected to talk about for our episode today. My name is Rachel E. Winston, and I am the founding Black Diaspora Archivist at the Benson Latin American Collection at the University of Texas at Austin. In its holdings, the Benson has three Calypso souvenir booklets from the years 1945, 1947, and 1949. These three souvenir booklets are from Trinidad and Tobago, printed in the capital city of Port of Spain. They are all edited by Raymond Cavedo, more commonly known by his stage name of Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun was a popular Calypsonian and pioneer in the Calypso tradition. He raised the popularity of the genre over the course of his career and is also credited with bringing Calypso to the United States in the 1930s. At the time of this recording, it's February 2023, which for many people is the season of Carnival. All over the world, folks are celebrating this season of revelry that has roots in Catholic pre-Lenten tradition. Carnival is a time filled with fets, performance, food, celebration, a very good time, and of course, music. Inspired by Carnival, these souvenir booklets and Calypso music more exactly are a form of counter-narrative, and that is the focus of this segment. Calypso is a musical genre in art form with origins in the English-speaking Caribbean, and specifically Trinidad and Tobago. With strong French, English, Spanish, and African influences, the earliest recordings date back to the earliest 20th century, with it rising in popularity in the 1930s. Most Calypsos are in English, or Creole English, representing the language of the people. Calypsonians, or the musicians performing Calypso, were popular, important people in society for the role they played in representing the interests and the voice of the masses. Originally an oral tradition, Calypso music was a way to spread news, relay public opinion, make social critique, celebrate significant events, and of course, to entertain. Double speak, or the use of double entendre, is another prominent feature. This tool allows the Calypsonian to say one thing and mean something else. So one line can have two or even multiple meanings, the literal and then another. So when we turn our attention to these three souvenir booklets, a lot of these features are represented. You see Calypso songs with titles such as American Election, Ode to Eisenhower, Boxing Career of Joe Lewis, Trade Unions in Trinidad, Abolish the Control Board, Men Smart, Women Smarter, and The Cook's Gossip. Each booklet includes a colored paper cover and end page. They are a little faded now, but you can tell they were, at one time, a bright red or perhaps a bright green. The internal pages of each booklet are printed on coarse newsprint paper. So over time, unfortunately, these pages have become brittle and are beginning to deteriorate. In format and structure, each booklet is pretty similar, including a brief foreword and introduction that provide commentary on the history and importance of the Calypso tradition. The pages that follow are filled with printed Calypso songs that were popular that year. When looking over these booklets from the 1940s, you see the names of popular male artists of the time, like Attila the Hun, Lion, Small Island Pride, King Radio, and Lord Invader, just to name a few. 
The printed Calypso songs, especially in the later editions, note the verse number and chorus, along with annotations when specific lines or verses repeat. The majority of advertisements in each booklet come from local businesses, bars, retail stores and suppliers, mortuaries, hotels, car services, food products, and travel agencies. There are also a small number of ads from international companies like KLM Dutch and Pan American Airlines, and even Coca-Cola. In the Calypso tradition, we see counter-narrative. From its very invention and across its evolution over time, Calypso music has served not only as a hallmark cultural expression, but also as a record of social happenings. Its roots in oral tradition is the result of oppressive colonial forces that prevented literacy among Black, Indigenous, formerly enslaved, and working class populations. In fact, in 1881, British colonial authorities recognized its influence and in an effort to destroy it, banned the use of percussion. Despite this, Calypso continued on with creativity, introducing the use of steel pan into the genre and including percussive rhythms that were originally made using cookware, lids, and oil cans when percussion drums were not available. I think there is something also significant about the very nature of these Calypso souvenir booklets. Documenting these songs, printing and distributing them, marks another point of evolution for Calypso. The music's reach and accessibility increased in new ways, and at the same time, its importance was asserted to the reading public. Because of this effort, Calypso's importance reaches beyond the year of an individual song, an individual booklet, and even beyond the island of Trinidad in Tobago and into our contemporary moment. And that wraps up our talk today on counter narratives. We want to thank all of our guests and hosts for being with us today. This episode was brought to you by Rare Book School, the Mellon Foundation, the entire podcast groups across three different time zones, Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Type Punch Matrix, and our podcast media consultant, Kelsey Brown. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time, take care.